if you have read the Gospels at all, then you know that much of the ministry of Jesus took place in the northern part of Israel around the Sea of Galilee. From childhood, many of us have heard the stories of Jesus walking on the water, calming the raging storm, feeding the 5,000, feeding the 4,000, and Jesus casting the demons into the herd of swine, which then ran down a steep bank into the water. All of those events and more took place right around the Sea of Galilee. But what I never realized until the first time I went to Israel was that Jesus did most of his miracles within a triangle of three towns just north of the Sea of Galilee. That is a remarkable reality. John 21-25 says, And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. John tells us in that statement, Jesus did so many things and so many miraculous works that it would be just about impossible to record all of them one by one. But the amazing thing about it is that according to Matthew 11.20, Jesus did most of his miracles within a triangle of three towns or villages just north of the Sea of Galilee. What an amazing privilege the people of that region had during the first century as the Son of God ministered in their midst. We are given just a snapshot, a sampling of that ministry in the text to which we come this morning. So turn with me, please, to Mark chapter 1 in your Bible. And if uh, you're already there, we're going to begin reading in verse 21. Verses 21 through 28 will form our text of consideration this morning. So Mark chapter 1, verse 21. We read, Then they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone! What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. Then they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? What new teaching or doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. As you look at the three-and-a-half-year ministry of our Lord, it can be broken down into three main sections. The early ministry of Jesus, the Galilean ministry of Jesus, and then the Judean-slash-Perean ministry of our Lord. Those are the three sections, if you will, of our Lord's earthly ministry. The early ministry, Galilean ministry, and then Judean-slash-Perean ministry. The only gospel writer who tells us about the early ministry of Jesus is John. John 1 through 4 tells us about the first year of Jesus' ministry. That first year of ministry involved the initial contact with the disciples, 
The ministry overlap with John the baptizer, the changing of water into wine, the first cleansing of the temple, the conversation with Nicodemus regarding the new birth, the conversation with the woman at the well, and the ministry among the Samaritans. All of that and more took place during the first year of our Lord's ministry. Following that initial year of ministry was the great Galilean ministry of Jesus. From the best we can calculate, the great Galilean ministry of Jesus lasted about 22 months, almost two years. This is the aspect of Jesus' ministry that Mark emphasizes in his gospel. Some of the key events of this ministry were the powerful sermon at the Nazareth synagogue, in response to which the people attempted to murder Jesus by pushing him off the cliff, the Sermon on the Mount, the confrontation regarding the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, the presentation of the parables of the kingdom, the sending forth of the twelve on their short-term mission, Peter's confession at Caesarea Philippi, and the transfiguration of Jesus into his second coming glory. Those are just some of the highlights of the great Galilean ministry of our Lord, and there were many, many more activities. Jesus was constantly preaching and teaching and healing. There was incessant activity around the Master. The third main section of Jesus' ministry was the Judean and Perean ministry. This is the aspect of Jesus' ministry that Luke emphasizes in his gospel. Some of the key events of this ministry were the sending out of the 70 on their short-term mission, Jesus denouncing the Pharisees, the salvation of Zacchaeus, and the raising of Lazarus from the dead, which is recorded in John's gospel. So as we have seen many times in the past, each gospel writer had his own purpose in mind when he composed his gospel record. Thus, they were selective in what they put in their gospel accounts. They included certain material, and they excluded certain material, depending on the emphasis that they wanted to give. And all of this was directed by the Holy Spirit of God in His work of inspiration. As I mentioned a moment ago, Mark emphasizes the great Galilean ministry of our Lord. And that's what we see in the text we read just a few moments ago. Mark decides to pull out one uh, little snapshot, one event, to give us a sample of the kind of ministry activity that took place throughout the Galilean ministry of our Lord over an almost two-year period. So what we're going to look at today in this text is simply a snapshot, a picture, a sample of what took place all the time over a two-year period throughout all the region of Galilee. So with that in mind, let's consider this text before us, beginning in verse 21. Mark tells us, Then they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught. Notice the phrase, then they went into Capernaum. As you know by now, Mark's gospel account is fast-paced. He uses the word immediately 42 times in his gospel record. He pictures Jesus as always on the move, always active, always doing the will of the Father. As a result of Mark's desire to be fast-paced in his account, he often chooses to skip over some details that the other gospel writers tell us. This is a case in point. 
Here, Mark simply says, then they went into Capernaum. There is, let me tell you, there is a whole lot behind that statement. What is behind that statement? Nazareth was the hometown in which Jesus has been raised. You may be noticed as this story unfolds that a demon refers to Jesus as Jesus of Nazareth. Because that was his hometown. That's where he had been raised. And the indication is that Jesus was going to base his ministry out of the town of Nazareth. But according to Luke 4, when Jesus, after having been gone for a while, returned to his hometown of Nazareth and went to the synagogue, the people became furious with his message and tried to murder him by pushing him off the cliff on which the town was located. So Jesus left Nazareth, his hometown, and he chose another location for his ministry headquarters. He chose Capernaum which is located right on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. This was the hometown of Peter, Andrew, James, John, and Matthew. It was a strategic location because there was a major highway called the Via Maris, a major highway that ran right through this region of the country. And people who traveled through Israel to get to Egypt in the south, which was a superpower in that day, or people who were traveling to any of the parts of the Roman Empire to the north, had to go through Galilee on the Via Maris, which is where Capernaum was located. So Jesus chose to base his ministry out of this particular town. From a human standpoint, we, we may have thought that Jesus would have chosen Jerusalem, the kingly city, for the base of his ministry. But if he had chosen Jerusalem for his headquarters, it would, have, it would have severely limited his opportunity to impact Gentiles. Not a lot of Gentile people frequented Jerusalem or even passed by Jerusalem. In fact, Jerusalem wasn't even near this major highway that passed through Israel, the Via Maris. So Jesus did not choose to base his ministry in Jerusalem. He chose to base in a town that would give him maximum opportunity to impact the Gentile population of the Roman Empire, as well as the Jewish population of the Roman Empire. He chose Capernaum as his headquarters. Beloved, think about what a privilege those people had. Think about Jesus living in your town, your, your city, your village. Jesus lived in and based his ministry out of the town of Capernaum. Matthew eleven twenty says that most of Jesus' miracles were done in three towns in Galilee, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. That is a remarkable statement, especially if you realize how close those three towns were located to each other. There is a vantage point on the rolling hills above the Sea of Galilee from which you can look out over this part of the land of Israel, and you can see... Within your field of vision, the former locations of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. They weren't that far apart. And to think that Jesus did most of his miracles in those three locations boggles the mind, especially when you, you factor in John's statement that he did so many things it would be almost impossible to record all of them. 
Jesus did so many things, so many miraculous works, that it would be just about impossible to record all of them, and yet he did most of them in Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. What a privilege and what an honor to have Messiah Jesus living and ministering and teaching and performing miracles right in your very midst, right in your community. But there was a problem. Jesus chose to live and minister among the people in Capernaum. But shockingly, most of the people there weren't that interested in him. Oh, they liked his healing miracles, of course. I mean, if you have a sick mom, dad, grandparent, child, you would appreciate that. They liked his healing miracles, and they liked the multiplying of food, multiplying, feeding 5,000, feeding 4,000 right there around the Sea of Galilee. They, they liked that, but they weren't interested in repenting of their sin to submit their lives to Jesus as their Lord and Savior. That is why Jesus said what he did in Matthew chapter 11. Back up with me for just a moment from Mark's gospel to Matthew's gospel chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, verse 20. Matthew tells us, Then Jesus began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Notice those last five words. Because they did not repent. That was the crux of the matter. The people in these three cities would not repent. You know why? Because they didn't think they needed to repent. After all, they were Jewish people. They weren't like the heathen Gentiles. Those were the only people who needed to repent. That was the attitude among these people in these three Jewish towns. This was a continual problem Jesus addressed with the Jewish people to whom he ministered. They thought they were fine. They thought they were okay. After all, they were the chosen people. They were Jewish people. They didn't think they needed to repent and be saved by Jesus. They were pridefully self-righteous. Like most of the Jewish people of the day, they didn't see the need to repent. They probably even thought, well, of course Jesus is going to headquarter his ministry here. Where else? He's not going to be, do that among the Gentiles. So in verse 21, Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. What an indictment. We, because we're not from that part of the world, might miss what Jesus was saying here, but this was a real indictment. Tyre and Sidon were Phoenician cities out on the Mediterranean coast, up in the northwest part of Israel, right on the coast. The Jewish people considered the people of those cities pagans. They considered them heathens. The Jewish people saw themselves as far better, far superior than the people of those cities. But here Jesus in his omniscience says that he knew that if the people of Tyre and Sidon 
had seen and experienced all of the miraculous works that had been done in Chorazin and Bethsaida, the people of Tyre and Sidon would have repented in deep humility. The people of Chorazin and Bethsaida were accountable for all they had seen, all they had experienced, all that had been given to them. It should have led them to repentance. Romans 2.4 says, The goodness of God leads you to repentance. God had displayed His immense goodness to those people in the form of His Son and all the mighty works that Jesus did in their midst. That should have led them to repentance. But it didn't. They continued in their stubborn self-righteousness. They took in all the good things Jesus did for the people of their community. All of his healings, all of his miracles. And they went right on with life as if they didn't need to change anything in their lives, anything about their hearts, anything at all. They just went right on with life. Verse 22, Jesus says, But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. That is a powerful affirmation of the axiom Jesus stated on one occasion when he said, To whom much is given, from him much will be required. The, the more exposure someone has to the Lord and his truth, the more accountable he will be in the day of judgment. Jesus clearly says in this verse that the people of Tyre and Sidon will not be judged with the same strictness as the people of Chorazin and Bethsaida. Now, they will still be judged. All who die without faith in Christ, all who die apart from repentance, all who die apart from submission to God will be judged. But God in His infinite wisdom and justice will mete out His judgment in exactly the proper way. The more revelation, the more truth, the more information someone has, the greater that person's responsibility. And so Jesus says in verse 23, And you, Capernaum, remember, that's where Jesus lived. That was the headquarters of his ministry. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Capernaum received an even greater indictment than Chorazin and Bethsaida because it was the headquarters of Jesus' ministry. He taught in their synagogue. Jesus spent a great deal of time there. And he did many mighty works there. What a privilege that city had. As Jesus says here, it was indeed exalted to heaven in its privilege. But the people there were for the most part Indifferent to the Lord. Ho-hum. Who's this? Jesus of Nazareth. Miracle worker. What's the big deal? It is interesting to note that we don't have any record that the people of Capernaum treated Jesus with derision or ridicule. No indication of that. No record of that. In other words, they weren't aggressively against him. They weren't like the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders of Israel who often opposed Jesus, undermined him, sought to somehow discredit him. No, they were just indifferent. What's the big deal? 
That was their attitude. Life moves on. How does God feel about that? What is God's response to that kind of attitude toward Jesus? Here Jesus says that is worse than the despicable immorality of the ancient city of Sodom. Did you hear that? Indifference to Christ is worse than blatant immorality or brazen homosexuality. Jesus knew how the people of his day viewed the ancient city of Sodom. He knew that. Sodom had become a byword for the grossest, worst kind of wickedness imaginable. But here Jesus says the apathy of the people of Capernaum toward the Lord Jesus was even worse than all the wickedness of Sodom. And so in verse 24, Jesus says, But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Those are words that ought to make us shudder. Because you remember what God did to Sodom. He buried it under so much fire and brimstone that still to this day, historical, uh, historical biblical theologians and those who work in the area of geography still can't locate exactly where Sodom was once located. God buried it under fire and brimstone so there would be no doubt about how God viewed their wickedness. But here Jesus says that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for the people of Capernaum. I warn you, I warn you, if you have had exposure to the truth in and about the Lord Jesus Christ and you reject that, or you're indifferent to it, and you're apathetic about it, your judgment will be more severe than words can describe. So now you can see why I said that there is a whole lot of background behind Mark's simple statement in chapter 1, verse 21, where he said, Then they went into Capernaum. Now let's go back to our text there in Mark chapter 1. So we read in verse 21, Then they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught. Mark tells us that on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and taught because Mark wants us to understand that this was the pattern of Jesus' ministry. This is how he operated. This is how he functioned. Matthew 4.23 says, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Matthew 9.35 says, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Verse 39 of this chapter here says, and he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. Mark 6.2 says, and when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. The Jewish people gathered on the Saturday Sabbath in their local synagogues, and some maybe even on the Friday night after sundown, which is when Sabbath officially begins for the Jewish people. They would gather in the synagogues, and Jesus took those opportunities to minister in a variety of ways, to preach, to teach, 
to cast out demons, to heal diseases. And that is exactly what we see in this text. Verse 22 says, And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. The key word in this verse is the word authority. Jesus taught with authority. His method of teaching was very unusual when compared to how the religious leaders taught in that day in that he didn't quote from all the rabbinical authorities to back up his views. The common teaching technique of that day was to quote from all the rabbinical authorities. In fact, it is still the most common way that rabbis teach today. They quote from all the other rabbis. But instead of quoting from the authorities, Jesus instead spoke with authority. That was completely contrary to the practice of his day. He repeatedly made the comment, You have heard it was said, that's a reference to all the rabbinical authorities, but I say unto you, He claimed to be the authority. And indeed, he was the authority because he was and is the divine Son of God. And he taught people what God's Word said, what God's Word meant. Therefore, he spoke with authority. The people listening to him could sense what he was claiming, and that's why they were astonished. He taught with authority. But he also did something else. He not only taught with authority, he acted with authority, as Mark illustrates in the following story. Verse 23, Now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out. The term unclean spirit is used throughout the New Testament as another title for demons. Demons are fallen angels that rebelled with Satan in his original rebellion, and they resisted Jesus throughout his earthly ministry. In Matthew 25, 41, Jesus made it clear that demons are fallen angels. All you have to do is read through the gospel accounts, and you will see that Jesus had multiple encounters with demons. When he did, this kind of response was common. The demon in the person would cry out, or often case, it was multiple, so the demons would cry out. That's what happens here. Verse 24, this unclean spirit was saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Not surprisingly, the demons always knew who Jesus was. After all, at one point they dwelt in heaven as angels. They're fallen angels. They always knew who Jesus was. And they always knew that he had the power to judge them. And that someday he was going to judge them. They knew that. They had their theology right on those things. They just didn't know when it was going to happen. They didn't know the time of their judgment. They knew the certainty of it, but not the timing. They knew that Jesus was the Holy Son of God in human flesh and they, they, they knew they were diametrically opposed to him. They had made their choice. They had decided to rebel with Satan. They were on Satan's side. Therefore, they wanted nothing to do with Jesus. They wanted him to leave them alone so they could continue to carry out their destructive activities in people's lives. 
They wanted to control people and torment people and enslave people. Prior to Jesus bursting on the scene, they had had their way with the people throughout the ancient land of Israel. They possessed people. You see it all the time, all the time in the gospel accounts. Time after time, case after case, multiple examples of people being demon-possessed. They possessed people. They tortured people. You remember the, the, the one occasion uh, where the description is, well, sometimes the demon throws him into the fire. They tortured people. They harassed people. They made life miserable for people. So they didn't like it whenever Jesus came around. That's what we see here on this occasion. This demon wanted to be left alone. But Jesus would have no part in that request. Verse 25, But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. It is interesting that Jesus didn't merely say, come out of him. First, he commanded the demon to be quiet. He didn't want the demon to continue spouting truth. He didn't want the demon to continue giving testimony about Jesus being the Holy One of God. You remember how the demon addressed Jesus in verse 24? Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The demon was right on. He knew exactly who Jesus was. And this is the way he uh, described Jesus. But Jesus didn't want to allow him to continue giving that description. Why? Why didn't Jesus want this demon to continue speaking the truth? The answer is because that is exactly what is so confusing about demons. Demons confuse people by speaking the truth. This is one of the reasons why some Christians have a hard time seeing through the lies of false religion. Because demons love to sprinkle truth in their error. Demons love to speak truth. That sounds ironic. Sounds, sounds wrong. Demons love to speak truth so that when they speak error, they just confuse people. Jesus understood how confusing that can be. So he commanded the demon to be quiet, first of all, and to come out of him. Verse 26 tells us, And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. The demon resisted to the very end, with all the strength he had, but he was no match for the authority of the Son of God. He had to do what Jesus said to do. He had to come out of this man. And verse 27 says, Then they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? What new doctrine, what new teaching is this? For with authority, there's the key word again of this, this whole text, Mark wants us to see that Jesus taught with authority. He acted with authority. For with authority, he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. The people had never seen anything like this. Some of them had seen religious leaders try to do exorcisms. That was not uncommon in that day. I mean, listen, if you are a, a culture, a group of people, a, a land that is just dominated by demon possession, you try anything. 
And so they had seen religious leaders try to do exorcisms, but they had never seen anything like this. Jesus could simply command demons with authority, and they had to obey him. By the way, this is something that Jesus eventually gave to his apostles to mark them, demonstrate that they were truly apostles, which lets us know that this ability is not inherent in just being a Christian. Do you understand what I mean by that? In other words, just being a Christian, a follower of Christ, which the disciples were before they had this power, doesn't automatically grant anyone this power. This is unique power, unique authority. Jesus gave this to the apostles at one point, which means they didn't have it for, for initially. This was one of the many proofs of Jesus' deity and messiahship. In Matthew 12, 28, he said, But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus stated there in Matthew 12 that he cast out demons by the Spirit of God. Jesus did his miracles in the power of the Holy Spirit, and specifically the miracles of casting out of demons. The Holy Spirit empowered Jesus to do that. Why? Not only to free the, the people who were held captive, but also to verify and prove that he was God's anointed one. And Jesus said that this was proof that the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, the king was present with them, demonstrating his kingdom, power, and authority. And Mark tells us here, the people were all amazed. This was something new. This was something that people had never seen. And it ignited a fire that spread throughout the entire region of the Middle East. Verse 28, Mark tells us, And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. Notice that Mark tells us that the fame of Jesus spread throughout all the region around Galilee. He didn't merely say that it spread in Galilee. Yes, it did spread in Galilee. But he said it spread everywhere throughout all the region surrounding Galilee. That means the news went beyond the borders of Galilee to the surrounding regions. Matthew 4.24 says, Then his fame went throughout all Syria... And they brought to him sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Syria, if you know your geography of the Middle East, Syria is outside of the land of Israel, immediately to the northeast of the region of Galilee. So that verse, Matthew 4.24, is telling us that the notoriety of Jesus spread outside the boundaries of Israel beyond the boundaries of Israel. People were willing to leave their homeland and cross national boundaries to bring their sick and diseased loved ones to this man in Galilee. But that's still not all. The next verse in Matthew 4, verse 25 says, Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis. Galilee alone, just Galilee had 204 cities and villages. 204. Close to 3 million people lived in the Galilee region, just the Galilee region. But just south of Galilee and mostly east of the Jordan River was the area known as Decapolis. 
The word Decapolis is a combination of two words, Deca, which means ten, and Polis, which means city. So the Decapolis referred to the cities, the ten cities of this area south of Galilee and mostly east of the Jordan River. The residents of these cities were almost all Gentiles, non-Jewish people. This league of cities was formed purposely to preserve Greek culture in this Jewish section of the world. So when we were told that great multitudes came from Decapolis to be around Jesus, that is letting us know that the popularity of Jesus wasn't restricted or limited to the Jewish people. First century Gentiles like you and me flocked to hear Jesus and see him. So the interest of Jesus spread well beyond Galilee, which is where Jesus headquartered his ministry. The popularity of Jesus spread to Syria in the northeast, the Decapolis in the east, not to mention Judea in the south, and beyond the Jordan in the southeast. The popularity of Jesus knew no boundary. That's what Mark is telling us here in this verse. His fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. In and around Galilee, Jesus became famous. His popularity knew no geographical boundary and no ethnic boundary and no religious boundary. But let me hasten to add one very important thought. Jesus was very popular, but not necessarily obeyed. What I mean is, the great multitudes that flocked to Jesus were mixed multitudes. Some of the people in these multitudes genuinely loved the Lord Jesus and genuinely believed in Him as their Lord and Savior. Many others in these multitudes were interested in Jesus only because He was a miracle worker. And they thought that they might benefit somehow if they just followed Jesus around. Which category would you be in? Maybe I should say it this way. Which category are you in? You see, you can admire Jesus, but not be right with him. There are a lot of people in our world who admire Jesus. They say, wow, what a, what a great teacher, what a great rabbi, what, what a, 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 a good moralist. They admire him, but they're not necessarily right with him. You can, you can admire him, but not be submitted to him. That's how a lot of people in the first century related to Jesus, and it still goes on today. So hear me when I say, it's not enough to admire Jesus. Maybe you're here this morning because you admire Jesus. You think, wow, Jesus was a neat man. What a, what a neat guy he was. It's not enough to admire him. You need to submit to him. You need to embrace him as your Lord and Savior. Let's bow together in closing this morning. <clears throat> as you bow your head this morning, close your eyes in the final few minutes we have together. Think about how you are related to the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you simply admire him? Do you merely admire him? Or are you really genuinely submitted to him? Yielded to him? Obeying him? Embracing him as Lord and Savior? That's the only right response.
not just to look back at him and think he was a great man, a great teacher, great rabbi, but to understand he is the Savior. And he calls on people to repent. But tragically, so many of the people in his own adopted hometown of Capernaum refused, just as people today refuse. What about you? Have you been willing to repent of your sins and turn to Jesus Christ in simple childlike faith? Or are you like the Jewish people of his day who had the attitude, well, I don't need to repent. Yeah, the, the really bad people, the heathen people, the real terrible sinners, they need to, but that's not, that's not me. Don't repeat the same tragedy. Acknowledge that you are a sinner who needs forgiveness, a sinner who needs to repent. And repent. Turn to Jesus Christ in humility, in submission, and receive him as your Lord and Savior. Father, as we reflect on this little snapshot that Mark gives us here in the opening chapter of his gospel, seeing how Jesus taught with authority and how he acted with authority, and then to consider the fact that so many people right there in his own adopted hometown, the place where he headquartered his ministry, so many just refused to repent. And also in Bethsaida and Chorazin, how they refused to repent thinking they didn't need to. Father, we, we see, we, we just see so clearly how that same scenario is repeated in our day and age. People who feel like that repentance is only something for horrible sinners, which they assume they are not. It's heartbreaking to see that same tragedy repeated in our day and age. Father, we pray that somehow, some way, your spirit would open blinded eyes soften hardened hearts that all of us, all of us would be a people who see that we are sinners, sinners that deserve judgment, but to whom you have extended mercy. And may that goodness that you extend to us lead us to repentance, as Paul says in Romans. And so we pray specifically for, for anyone here gathered in our midst, anyone hearing these words who does not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, who needs to repent, who needs to not simply admire Him, but embrace Him and submit to Him. Father, may Your Spirit work in our midst and in our hearts so that each and every one of us gathered here has yielded to the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.